Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, that they would not be defiled, but would eat, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you have against this man? They answered, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and then called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do you say others say to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief of priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from, this, from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who, who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is the truth? After he had said, said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one, of, one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of G Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barbas. Now Barbaras was a bar robber. Right. This is the word of the Lord, and we're going to jump into it together. Let me pray and ask the Lord's um, help briefly. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word today. Um, the word that we even just are reminded um, from Tyler and Haley is a privilege to be able to read and access. Um, and so, Lord, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would be our teacher that you would show us more of who Jesus is and what he's done for us today and that we would leave here worshiping you more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure at some point in your life you have been faced with the temptation whether to tell the truth or to lie. I'm sure all of us have faced that at one point in our lives. I faced this when I was a college student. I uh, was coming to the end of my semester and the teacher had assigned a bunch of reading for the semester and the, at the end of the semester, all we had to do was submit a paper where we said how much of the reading we did. And whatever we said was the grade we got. There was no real following up or digging into the details to see if we were telling the truth or if we were lying. So the problem that I faced is I didn't do any of the reading all semester. And I come down to the uh, very last assignment here and I have to submit this reading and I have to sign my name and say how much of the reading that I did. And I did maybe 5%. So I'm kind of doing the mental math and thinking, okay, my grade is a B. If I do 5%, that's a really bad score. It's worth this much of my grade. I'm not going to pass the class. What do I do? I'm faced with this temptation. Do I tell the truth or do I lie? And the truth can be really scary sometimes. And um, I'm ashamed to say that I lied. I said I did, I think I said I did 95% of the reading because, you know, make it believable. And I submitted that project and uh, I passed the class. And a couple weeks later, I was riddled with guilt. And I emailed the professor and I confessed and I said, here's what I did, I'm so sorry. And this was my last semester before I graduated. I'd already got my diploma. I'm sitting here thinking, this guy's gonna pull my, he could pull my diploma. I could have to go back to school. This could be horrible. And thankfully he showed me grace. 
and he said, thank you so much for confessing. I'm going to drop your grade, but you're still going to pass the class, but thank you for being honest. And it was this moment, it was just, I really learned in this moment, like, man, telling the truth can be really difficult. It can be really hard. The truth can be scary. It can expose things about us we don't want to look at, we don't want to know about. It can confront us with things that we don't want to listen to or face us with consequences that we don't want to go through. And sometimes our word can be really fickle because unless we're threatened, we think, well, it's probably better for me to just lie. That's why our legal system has something called being sworn in. When you come to be a witness, you have to swear in to say that you are going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And the reason why we do that is because we know as human beings, if sometimes if we're not given enough of a threat to tell the truth, we just won't because we know the truth is really hard. And it's really scary. And as we come to this passage in the book of John today, we are told that Jesus is the truth. He himself tells the truth at all times. He never once lies. He never once changes what truth is. He himself is the source of truth. He is truth. And as we come to John 18, Jesus is being put on trial by human beings. But as the author of this testimony to the life of Jesus does so brilliantly, even though Jesus is on trial, the author here, John, systematically puts humanity on trial through this passage and shows us the truth that we are sinners, that we are wicked and evil, and we are in need of a Savior. And so as we look at this passage today, it reveals our sin. And when we read the Bible talking about sin, we must read it as our sin and see our propensity to run from the Lord and sin against him. So let's look at this together. This story kind of works itself out in three different scenes. The first one is a group of Jews has arrested Jesus and they've brought him to Roman authorities. They're trying to seek a way to kill and murder Jesus. And the first kinds of sinners that we see in this passage are religious sinners. They are these Jews who are very highly religious and very focused on obeying God, and yet they are seeking to kill Jesus. They've been doing this for a long time. If you've been with us throughout the book of John, since John chapter 11, it told us after Jesus rose a man from the dead, it tells us they decided they needed to put Jesus to death, and they started scheming about how they would do it. And so now we come to the point where they've figured out the strategy. They bring him before Roman authorities who have the true authority to put someone to death in this culture. And it tells us this, that they led Jesus to the governor's headquarters, a man named Pilate. And it says, they themselves would not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat Passover. Passover was a feast that God had instilled for his people to remember the time that he brought Israel out of slavery from the land of Egypt. And every year they would celebrate this together and worship God for his redemption, for him setting them free. And so it tells us, that as this group of Jews bring Jesus to try to murder him, it tells us that they, they were concerned about obeying God through celebrating Passover and remaining religiously and ceremonially clean in order to do that. But at the same time, they would not want to defile themselves by entering the home of Pilate. They believed that entering the home of a non-Jew made them unclean and therefore they couldn't celebrate Passover. So here's the irony of what's happening. They are taking elaborate precautions to, be, to not be ceremonially defiled so that they can celebrate their Passover, all while they're trying to scheme and manipulate the justice system to murder Jesus. 
So they'll say, no, 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 ceremonial defilement? Absolutely not. That is beneath us. Moral defilement? Sure, yeah, no problem. We'll try to murder this guy and skirt the law and manipulate things. Yeah, that's, that's no problem for us. So they would be upholding their religious morality while actually disobeying the very God they're claimed to be worshiping. This is hypocrisy. It's the delusion of sin, which says this, Surely God will be pleased with our ritualistic acts while we also murder his son. It's the same kind of idea that's present in our world today. This idea that God will bless me if I do the right things, if I, you know, don't use that bad language, or uh, if I go to church consistently, or if I'm just trying to be kind to people, or if I pray, or if I embody the right virtues in the world, surely God will bless me if I do those things, all while I'm actually rejecting the Jesus of the Bible and not following his word. He'll bless me for the rituals that I do, even though I'm disobeying everything he reveals and calls me to do in his word. Surely God will bless all of my righteous pursuits while I'm actually rebelling against his word. This is what this crowd is doing here. And in the midst of this, they are calling something good evil. They bring Jesus to Pilate, who has the authority to put him to death. And Pilate essentially says, what accusation do you bring? The truth is they don't have one. They don't have one that Pilate's going to care about. So they simply say, well, would we have brought him here if he was not doing evil? Pilate's pressing them to get them to, to give an actual accusation, but instead they just say, well, he's evil. That's why we brought him here. You really think we would bring him here if there were not things we had against him? This man is evil. And here they decide to call the one and only true good person there's ever been evil and do the very thing that their own scriptures have called out from the book of Isaiah. It says, woe to those who call good evil and call evil good, who exchange darkness for light. Woe to those who are wise according to their own eyes. That's exactly what they do. They believe Jesus is evil, but it's because they compare Jesus to their own standard of goodness. They look at the life Jesus lived and the things that he says and who he claimed to be and they decided that according to their standards, he was not good, he's evil. It's just more of religious sin to think I have the true standard of goodness and everything in life must submit to my standard, my template, my filter of goodness. This is not something that just happened here. It continues to happen in our world today where there will be many who will say, well, you tell me that Jesus loves people. Well, I have a true understanding of what real love is. So let me filter what the Bible says about love through my own standard of what love is. And then I'll tell you whether it's good or it's bad. Or I have my own standards of what is appropriate for me to do with my body. So if the Bible's going to say anything about it, well, let me then first filter it through my own standards. And then I will tell you whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Or I have my own understanding of what kind of identity I can have. So let me filter what the Bible says through my own standard of goodness. Or what the Bible says I can do with my money. Let me filter that through what I believe is true and good and right. Anybody claiming to know true goodness, true righteousness, true virtue apart from Christ, 
whether they recognize it or not, they're in this category of religious sinners. And so these Jews bring Jesus before Pilate to try to put him to death. And all the while, they're putting on display their own evil behavior, not Jesus. Then Pilate takes Jesus inside of his headquarters in scene number two. And we see this conversation between Jesus and Pilate, and we're confronted with another kind of sinner. If these, at first we saw religious sinners, now we see irreligious sinners represented by Pilate. Historians have said this about Pilate, that he was a morally weak and vacillating man who tried to hide his flaws under shows of stubbornness and brutality. And so as Jesus comes before him, his biggest concern is, is this Jesus a threat to what I have going on? Is he a threat to the power that I have, to the establishment that I have, to my own throne? Is this man a threat? That's his biggest concern to figure out. And so he somewhat mocks Jesus and he looks at him and he says, are you a king? Look at you. You're bound in chains. You don't have any armies with you. You have no robes to indicate your own authority. You have no throne. You don't have, you're alone. You're weak. You're subject to whatever I deem over you. You are a king. And he kind of mocks him and Jesus responds to him by saying this, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Jesus is trying to discern who's really asking this question. Is it you, Pilate, who's asking according to your own definitions and understandings of what a king is? Or is it the crowd saying it to you and you're just repeating it? Because it might change how I answer you. I think it, it changes how Jesus might answer this question. Who's actually asking? And then Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Essentially saying this, the source of my kingdom is not earthly powers and earthly things. My kingdom is not established through earthly means. Which means Jesus is saying this, his kingdom is not protected or advanced through armies or policies or candidates. Jesus' kingdom is not established or advanced through money or power or numbers or popularity or relevance. His kingdom has an entirely different source and it's not of this world. The source of it is from above. It is from God himself. It will be established and advanced through the message of the gospel of Jesus, of what he will come to do to die to save sinners. It's an entirely different kingdom. It's not one that needs armies and power and influence and wealth and policies and the right candidates and the right political parties. Amen. He even tells us, in one of the other gospels, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church and his kingdom. Nothing will stop it. It's a kingdom that's not of this world. It's from above. It's got, he's essentially telling him, I've got more authority than anything on earth. I'm, I, I, he's, he's essentially telling him, I'm not really here for your throne pilot so you can relax. I'm actually here for something way bigger. And, he, and it totally goes over his head. In fact, not only is his kingdom not of this world, all of the rulers and the powers and authorities on earth are serving his kingdom because all of this is happening according to his plan and his will. 
Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is not active in this world or that we don't see it in this world because certainly it breaks in and we see it here. But he's saying the source of it is not earthly. And he tells him, the whole reason I'm here is to bear witness to the truth because he is the truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus' very purpose and mission in coming to earth was to reveal to sinners, both presently and to this day, to reveal the truth of who he is, of who we are, and how much we need him to be saved. And Pilate's response, what is truth? That's what he says. Verse 38, what is truth? It's like being confronted with something and you don't really know how to respond. And you're just like, well, I mean, what is truth anyways? How can anyone really know what truth is? Frankly, I mean, truth is but a word that simply gets defined by cultures and play. Like, it's just a nonsense answer. He says, what, what, what is truth? And in this response, we see something from Pilate. He doesn't like truth. He doesn't like things to be absolutely true because he does not want to have to come under the authority of something that's true. He prefers relative truth. He prefers, well, that can be true for you, but this will be true for me. You do you. You live your truth. Let's just get along with each other. I'll do what's true for me, you do what's true for you. That's called relative truth. The main problem with relative truth is that it's inherently self-refuting. If something is, is true, it means it corresponds with reality for everyone. If I were to stand up here and say, it is, there is no such thing as truth, that statement in and of itself is a truth claim. It is inherently self-refuting. I am claiming to tell you the truth, that there is no truth. That's self-refuting. Do you see that? It is illogical. It is not possible. You cannot consistently believe that. If something is true, it's true. Whether you agree with it or not, Pilate doesn't like that. He prefers a truth that just says, well, that could be true for you, but it's not true for me. It's relative truth and it's self-refuting and it's foolishness. The other problem with relative truth is it's impossible to live by. It's impossible. First off, here's what, this is what John Piper says. John Piper says, nobody is a relativist in the courtroom where their objective evidence hangs, their, sorry, let me start over. No one is a relativist when they're in a courtroom where their objective innocence hangs on objective evidence. In that setting, all of us realize, oh, relativism doesn't work. Objective truth will be the thing that tells me I'm innocent. Everybody throws out relativism at that moment because it's illogical, but it's also unlivable. That's what author Rebecca McLaughlin says this about relative truth. She says, the problem with it is first, if, if we accept that first, we can no longer make any universal moral statements like men and women are equally valuable. Second, we can no longer make absolute historical statements like the Holocaust happened. Third, 
While relativism seems like a humble approach to religious questions, it actually turns out to be quite arrogant. Because if I say, well, Christianity is true for me, while Islam is true for you, I'm actually not taking the beliefs of either of those very seriously. Ultimately, we respect each other far more if we are willing to disagree. This isn't livable. It's not logical. But it becomes a marker of irreligious sinners who don't want to have anything to do with facing truth and say, well, I'll just decide what's true for me and you decide what's true for you. And we can't function that way. We can't function without some transcendent source of moral authority. Because if we all have different definitions of what's, what is good, of what is bad, what is love, what is hate, we, don't, we can't function. I don't have anything to stand on. If my children were to come to me today and say, Dad, I, I really like to start a business where I rob banks. <laughs> and truth is relative. I can't say anything to them. I can't tell them, don't do that, it's wrong. Because it's relative. That's just true for me, not true for them. We, we can't function as human beings without that. Jesus says, I am the truth. And when he says that to Pilate, he is saying, I'm true for everyone for all time. I am truth. I am the source of truth. I am, what, I am who defines what is good and what is evil. I am the one who tells you what is and what is not he says that he is the king, he is the God, he is the savior. And he tells us this truth all throughout the scriptures that we are sinners who rebel against God and deserve the consequences of our sins, which is death because God is so holy and righteous and perfect. And the more powerful and holy the being is that we sin against, the greater the consequence. Right? My sin against my brother comes with less consequences than if I sin against the president. Why? Because the president has more authority. He's more in charge. God is the creator of all things. He tells us that the wages of sin is death, and he tells us the truth, but he also tells us that he came to save. And that all who come to him and turn from their sins and trust in this Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, we will be saved. He's come to bear witness to the truth for everyone for all time. Pilate doesn't like it. He wants to stay neutral. He wants to stay in this ground where he just says, Jesus, that's cool for you to believe, man. I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to leave you alone. But Pilate can't remain neutral because to not be for Jesus is to be against him. He can't be neutral. To be against the truth is to stand with what is false. And he tries to skirt it. And he essentially says to the crowd, well, you want Jesus arrested? Well, I can't find anything against him. I don't want to make this dude angry. He's claiming to be the truth. Got a kingdom out of this world. I don't really know what to do, but you guys are clearly angry. So let's just like, you just choose like, either I'll set Jesus free or I'll set this other prisoner Barabbas free. Just let you guys decide. And in the process, Pilate come, becomes complacent because the crowd does something he did not expect. And they choose Barabbas to be set free. And we're faced with one more type of sinner in this story, and it's the rebellious sinner. We're told very little about Barabbas, but we're told that there's this custom on Passover where, where they would release one prisoner. And so in this custom, he holds before the people Jesus 
and Barabbas. And what we're told about Barabbas is essentially two things, is that he is a robber and a murderer. We're told from some of the other gospels that he is a murderer. Here we're told he's a robber, which is probably a little bit more in line with being an insurrectionist. There's thought that, that this Barabbas character is someone that uh, sought to destabilize the political system through terrorist activity. And that he incited a riot at one point and murdered some people. He's not, he's not a good dude. He's a bad man. He's a murderer and he's a robber. He's one that takes life from people, takes goods from people. He deserves the chains. He deserves what's coming for him. He deserves to be put to death for what he's done. He's a bad man. He's wicked. He's one who has just chosen to live life however he wants, regardless of what anyone else says or thinks. He's a rebellious sinner. And there's something that John is doing when he tells us about this character, Barabbas. If you've been with us in the book of John, you'll notice at certain times, John likes to keep people anonymous in his book. He'll sometimes just write um, that there was a man or there was a disciple and he won't name who they are. And sometimes John uses anonymity to communicate something in the, sto in the story, to put focus on something specific. But here, he names Barabbas. So when, he, when the author names someone, he's doing something. And it's wrapped up in what Barabbas' name actually means. Sometimes in this society, they didn't really use last names. And so when someone had the same name as someone else, they needed to differentiate between those people. Like in this church, we have about approximately, I don't know, 63 people named Matthew. Okay? <laughs> so how do we differentiate between those? In this culture, what they would do is they would differentiate them based on who their father was. So they would say, well, this is Matthew, and then the phrasing would be uh, to, to essentially say, of Greg, his father. So they would say, Matthew bar Greg, or Matthew um, bar Tom. Tom. Thank you. <laughs> you. You would differentiate the different ones based off who their father was. So you would say bar, and then the father's name. And so here, we're not even given Barabbas' first name. We're just given Barabbas, bar Abbas. Essentially what John is saying by communicating his name, he's telling us that what this man's name means is son of the father. We're not told which father, but we've been told all throughout the gospel of John that Jesus is the son of the true father in heaven. And so what Pilate does in this moment, he now holds before the people, Barabbas, son of the father, and Jesus, son of the true father. There's even some sources that say Barabbas' first name might have actually been Jesus. So we have Jesus, son of the Father, and the true Jesus, the son of the one true Father. Which will you choose? And what the crowd does is they exchange the true son of the Father for Barabbas. And it's in line with what Jesus has said in John chapter 10, Jesus told us this. The very things that define who Barabbas was, he was a robber and a murderer. John 10 says this, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. At its core, this is what sin is, choosing Barabbas, 
over Jesus. Choosing to follow the one that steals and kills and destroys from us, the ruler of this world, Satan, instead of Jesus, the one who gives his life for us. And in the midst of this whole story, we are given a beautiful gospel parable where we see the depravity of sinful man. We see our own sinfulness, right? In this story where we see, surely these people will not choose Barabbas over Jesus. There's no way, but they do. And then we also see the grace of God where we see, surely Jesus won't give his life for these people that are doing this to him. Surely Jesus won't give up his life for this evil man, Barabbas, and yet he does. And all of this is happening for one purpose. Look at what it says in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the plan of God, that Jesus would be crucified on a cross. Because Jesus had also said earlier in John chapter 3, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus is in control. We should feel the scandal of this moment, though, that Jesus would trade places with this evil man. And I've been wondering what, who, would, who would be a modern equivalent for us that would make us feel this scandal if Jesus traded places with them to take their punishment and just give them forgiveness and honor instead, set them free. Who would make us feel that scandal? Maybe it's somebody like Donald Trump. Maybe it's somebody like Hillary Clinton. Maybe it's somebody like Vladimir Putin. Somebody that you would look at and be like, I can't believe, that would offend me. That Jesus would let them off? Or maybe it's somebody in your past who's deeply wronged you. Maybe it's a parent or a boss or an ex or an old friend. Maybe it's a family member who just drives you insane. Maybe it's a coworker that's just so blind to how prejudiced they are or a friend that has gone off the rails that person that if you saw Jesus show kindness to them, you would cringe. This man was evil. This was scandalous to do. And yet here's what the Spirit of God does through the gospel. The Spirit helps us see this, that most of all, we are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. helps us believe that the chief of sinners is right here. The Spirit of God helps us to see that my sin is appalling. Helps us to believe that Jesus choosing to be my sacrifice is scandalous. The Spirit of God helps us when we understand the gospel and we understand the truth of our sin, helps us believe that we are Barabbas. But the gospel doesn't leave us in that place. It doesn't leave us right there. It, it, it takes us further. It draws worship from our hearts to not just say, I deserve the chains, but to say, he set me free. 
to not just say, look at how wretched I am and how filthy I am, but to say, look at how glorious Christ is. Look at this Savior lifted up in glory. Hallelujah. What a Savior he is. Behold him. The gospel moves our eyes to see Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had that moment when you've been outside and you see one of those planes in the sky that's like writing a message, right? You, you, you see one of these planes and everyone, you have to look. Everyone starts looking. And once one person sees another person looking in the sky, they're like, what are you looking at? What is that? I have to see what it is. And then we all stand there for like five minutes waiting for it all to be spelled out and see what it actually spells. I've had this moment before. We want, we want, we are eager to see something wondrous, to have our eyes lifted up to see what's going on up there. This is what the gospel does for us. It lifts our eyes to see Jesus, to see someone glorious. In this moment, no one is still looking at Barabbas. No one's looking at Barabbas anymore. Their eyes are fixed on Jesus. Their eyes are fixed on Jesus of Nazareth, the innocent man who humbly trades places with a terrorist. And they behold him. Their eyes are fixed on the healer who goes to receive the wounds of the cross. They behold him. They see the miracle worker who's walked on water and now is willingly walking towards suffering. They see the Jesus who spoke words of life, now willing to go to his own death, all to ransom sinners. And everyone is now beholding Jesus. That this is why he came. And he came for all kinds of sinners. Religious sinners, irreligious sinners, rebellious sinners, sinners of all kinds None of us are worthy of his forgiveness. None of us are worthy of his grace or of his love. But in his mercy, he came to be lifted up on a cross, to die in our place for our sins, to then rise from the grave after three days and says, all who will come to me, all who will believe in me, who will turn from their sins and trust that I accomplish their forgiveness and come to me will be saved and set free. And when I am lifted up on that cross, I will draw all kinds of sinners to myself. You will see me and you will behold me. Amen. This is why he came. Jesus is the truth. He not only shows us the truth of our sin, but he shows us the truth and the beauty of who he is, his unwarranted favor, his sure and definite accomplishment of forgiveness, his irresistible grace. This is who Jesus is and what he came to do so that we might behold him and worship him. I'm gonna invite the worship team on up and we're gonna pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today where we see that you are a God that came to seek and save the lost. You came to save sinners because sinners are all that there are. And Lord, maybe we've been confronted this morning with our own sin. But Lord, we've also been confronted with your grace and your mercy that you were the Jesus that was willing to trade places with us, the Barabbases, so that we might be set free, not because we deserved it, but because you choose to have mercy on whom you will have mercy. 
Jesus, you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of following. You're worthy of following to the ends of the earth because that's your your beautiful Savior. Lord, would you help us respond in the way in which you're calling us this morning? Maybe you're, you're calling us to respond today for the first time in faith and in trust to you. Maybe you're calling some of us here this morning to turn from being our own Savior, from being in charge of our own lives, to humbling ourselves and saying, we need forgiveness for our sins. Maybe you're calling us to repent of our sins and trust in you, Jesus, for the first time and be welcomed into the family of God. Maybe you're calling others of us this morning that have been following you but have had our eyes fixed on other things. Lord, we want to behold you and worship you. Help us respond to you now. We pray in your name. Amen.